If you're a reader, you may have discovered that one main character totally changing their perspective on one of the other main characters is a common device in romance novels. The standard plot for a Harlequin romance was girl meets guy, can't stand him, circumstances force her to reevaluate, she falls for him and they live happily ever after. Why, even in the beloved Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth Bennet declares vehemently to Mr. Darcy, I had not known you a month before I felt that you were the last man in the world whom I could ever be prevailed upon to marry. And yet, she's forced to rethink things. And, 20 or so chapters later, married they were. Today we're going to look at a parable that Jesus told in which the characters importantly change or don't change their minds. Again, in our Lenten sermon series this year, we are traveling with Jesus through the six days of Holy Week. Last week, Aaron looked at Tuesday and some of Jesus' teachings about the destruction of the temple. But Jesus' biographers devote a lot of space to his teaching on that Tuesday. They take up almost five chapters in Matthew's account. So I'm going to stay on Tuesday and look at another of Jesus' teachings from that day. Remember that these teachings are offered at a time when Jesus knows his own crucifixion is imminent and that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple will follow within that same generation. They carry themes of preparation and perseverance that will be needed to maintain faith in a time of turmoil and of judgment on the nation of Israel for its unfaithfulness to the covenant. Here's how Matthew tells the story that we'll look at today. Jesus went into the temple. As he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him. By what right are you doing these things, they asked him. Who gave you this right? I'm going to ask you one question too, replied Jesus, and if you tell me the answer, then I'll tell you by what right I'm doing these things. Where did John's baptism come from? Was it from heaven or from this world? They debated this amongst themselves. If we say from heaven, they said, he's going to say to us, so why didn't you believe him? But if we say from this world, we'll have to watch out for the crowd because they all reckon that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Well then, said Jesus, nor will I tell you by what right I'm doing these things. What do you think, he went on, once upon a time, there was a man who had two sons. He went to the first one and said, Now then, my boy, off you go and do a day's work in the vineyard. Don't want to, replied the son. But afterwards he thought better of it and went. He went to the other son and said the same thing. Certainly, master, he said. But he didn't go. So which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. I'm telling you the truth, Jesus said to them, the tax collectors and prostitutes are going into God's kingdom ahead of you. Yes, John came to you in accordance with God's righteous covenant plan, and you didn't believe him. 
But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. But when you saw it, you didn't think better of it afterwards and believe him. Let's start with some context. The religious leaders, the chief priests and elders, have come to challenge Jesus as he teaches in the temple. This is a tense time for them. The issue for them is not just fine points of theology that they might disagree with Jesus on. It's far more political. They've fostered an alliance with their Roman occupiers that serves both well. Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, had actually been appointed 15 years earlier by the Roman governor Gratus, who was Pilate's predecessor. The Jews were allowed freedom of religion and exemption from being conscripted to the Roman army. But in exchange, their leaders were expected to make Palestine a low-maintenance colony, one without rebellion or strife. And the events of Palm Sunday, with large crowds proclaiming Jesus to be their king, and Monday's commotion in the temple didn't augur well for a peaceful Passover season. They didn't mind when he was just a popular rabbi in the outlying province of Galilee, even if there were rumors of him having worked some miracles. But now he was in Jerusalem, having arrived in a strange sort of royal victory parade, and then proclaiming the end of the temple both in word and in his actions. And all this when Jerusalem was already a powder keg crammed full of Passover pilgrims. Given the situation, the religious leaders tried to undermine Jesus' standing with his followers and dissipate the tension by trapping him into saying something either politically or theologically fatal. So they questioned him about his authority. What gave him the right to say and do the things he did? Well, of course, Jesus recognizes the motivation behind their question and turns the table by asking them where John the Baptist got his authority for his ministry. When they are silenced, he goes on to tell his story of the two sons. The father asks the first to go work in the vineyard, and he says no, but then later changes his mind and goes. The father then asks the other son to go out and work. That son says, certainly, master but doesn't go. And in a clever rhetorical device that he used on other occasions, Jesus made his opponents identify which son it was who did what the father wanted. There are a couple of details from the parable that I think are worth noticing. The first son shows no respect for the father and no interest in being involved in the father's work. He just says, nope, not interested, and walks off. In the story, Jesus doesn't have the father ordering him to go, threatening or punishing him. He apparently allows him to make his own choices. But later, that son changes his mind. Some translations say he repents. I've mentioned several times that the word used in the New Testament for repent is metanoia, literally to think, understand, or perceive after. So in his early sermons, Jesus preached, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
In effect, he's saying, the kingdom I'm introducing is going to be very different. So after you've heard about it, you'll need to rethink everything. In this story, repent is not metanoia, but a closely related word that can be translated to care afterwards. The first son didn't care about what the father wanted when he first asked him to go to the vineyard. But after some time, after he rethought it, he began to care and went to work in the field. I'm using the word rethink instead of repent because it has less baggage for me and because translators do. I'm not just making it up. But I should clarify about what is meant by rethinking. It's not just rehashing what you already think. It's not this son going away seriously annoyed that his father expected him to work on a nice sunny day, mentally complaining about the fact that he'd already made plans to go to the beach with his friends, rehearsing his resentment toward his dad, and so on. I'm good at that kind of rethinking. If I have had a stressful conversation, I can think about it over and over again, each time I run the mental tape more deeply entrenching my certainty that I was the one who was right. But apparently the first son does a different kind of rethinking because he comes to a new conclusion and sets off to the vineyard. One other thing to note about the first son is Jesus doesn't say he throws himself at the father's feet begging for forgiveness. It's not that kind of repentance. He just gets busy doing what the father wanted him to do. The other brother, of course, has a very different response. He tells the father, yes, sir, I'll do it. The word translated sir or master here is curios, a word generally translated lord. It's the word Jesus uses when he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And of course, that's exactly the point Jesus is making here. The second son has the superficial appearance of respecting the father and being keen to do his will. But when the time comes to act on it, he is nowhere to be found. Jesus uses really inflammatory language when he tells the religious leaders that the most notorious of sinners will get into the kingdom ahead of them. Eugene Peterson translates it, I tell you that crooks and whores are going to precede you into God's kingdom. This would have been shocking and probably infuriating for the religious leaders. Jesus points out that they could have rethought things when they heard the message of John the Baptist. And if not then, when they saw the transformed lives of the repentant tax collectors and prostitutes, they could have rethought things then, but they didn't. And they even could have rethought things on that Tuesday in the temple, but they didn't. When the religious leaders had gone to see John the Baptist in the wilderness, he called them on their sanctimonious certainty. He labeled them a bunch of snakes and said, don't even start telling me that you're descendants of Abraham. They had the right pedigree. They were God's chosen people. And they had their theology right. They spent their lives studying and debating Torah until they had parsed every word. But that's where their confidence lay, in belonging to the right group and believing the right things. 
they weren't willing to rethink things. I find it easy to be critical of those religious leaders. It's easy to look with our 2020 hindsight and say that they should have recognized Jesus was Messiah. But what they did recognize was that rethinking everything was going to be a costly endeavor. The tax collectors and prostitutes had little to lose when they repented, but the religious leaders had everything to lose. Their social standing. They got the places of honor at all the best banquets. Their political standing. They had a sweet deal with Pilate that threatened to be undermined if they didn't get a lid on this Jesus thing. Their religious standing. If they rethought everything, they could no longer position themselves as the source of all truth about God. And even their economic standing, since all of those other sources of privilege led to financial prosperity. We get a sense of those barriers when the religious leader Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus by dark of night and balks at the notion of having to be born again. It's easy to take pot shots at them, but they were faced with a terrible choice, and I can't know if I would have done differently. Some of you may be able to identify with them. Some of you have abandoned a theology that was no longer working for you, but in doing so, you lost community, social standing, security of being right, and in some cases, even your job. I don't want to minimize those costs. And Jesus knew them too. But he said, even though it's costly and even scary, I'm telling you, you need to rethink everything. How do we get ourselves painted into those kinds of corners where rethinking is so costly? What happened to the insatiable curiosity we had when we were kids, the enthusiasm for new ways of seeing things? For most of us, probably it's some version of we became fearful and looked for security. And when someone articulate and convincing told us they had the right answers, we enthusiastically jumped down that rabbit hole. Here at last was a system of faith we could hang on to and believe in. In Pete N.'s book, The Sin of Certainty, he succinctly describes this as trusting our beliefs rather than trusting God. He says the preoccupation with holding on to correct thinking with a tightly closed fist is really tempting, and the alternative is terrifying letting go and having to trust God, free-falling without the certainty of a formulaic set of beliefs. That is the kind of rethinking that Jesus was challenging the religious leaders to, and the kind of rethinking he's calling us to. Why do we need to rethink our ideas of God? Not because God is changing. God is not but because we have a lot of misperceptions and we need to come and see God more clearly. I mean, what's the alternative? Am I to think that when I first reached out to God as an angsty teenager in the basement of my parents' house, that the perception of the divine that I had at that moment in time was perfect and mustn't be tampered with? That seems highly unlikely. Apparently, the odds of correctly predicting the March Madness basketball bracket are 1 to 9.2 quintillion. 
That sounds about right for the odds of a 17-year-old me seeing God accurately. But if I rethink my views of God, how do I know they're getting more accurate? 22-year-old Jan had happily embraced a religious system that gave her all the right answers, and I know exactly what she'd say about current Jan, who is rethinking everything. She'd shake her head sadly and say I was wrong, that I'd backslidden, or worst of all, that I wasn't willing to pay the price of obedience, so I'd gone liberal. How do I know she isn't right? How can I be certain? The point, of course, is that I can't. To live by faith is to live with uncertainty. But there are some pointers, both in this chapter in Matthew's biography and in Jesus' earlier sermons, where he critiques those who say, Lord, Lord, but don't live the way he tells them to. There is a reference to fruitfulness, that the fruit of what we believe reveals whether we are on the right track. John told the religious leaders who came to him in the wilderness to bear bear fruit that befits repentance. I'm confident that I still don't see God accurately. Those 1 to 9.2 quintillion odds are pretty big. But in this season where I am rethinking how I see God and how I should live in light of Jesus' teaching, I'm seeing some much-needed healthy fruit in my life. And that gives me confidence to move forward. Jesus commends the first son in his story for rethinking his position and doing what the father wanted. And he critiques the religious leaders for being like the older son, the other son, superficially faithful, but unwilling to rethink anything. He knows that events in the coming days and years will challenge some of the cherished beliefs of even his closest followers. But if their confidence is not in those beliefs, but in God, they will be able to weather the storm. We may have been told somewhere along the line that the important thing is to hang on to our faith. But I'm seeing more and more that my faith is cluttered with ideas in my own mind that are unhelpful and untrue. Ideas like, it's God's intention for me to be healthy and happy. Or, that God hates the same people that I do. Or, that my walk with God is a solo journey. So I can't, or at least shouldn't, cling to that faith. Instead, I need to cling to God and be ready to rethink my ideas. The romance writers had one thing right. A happy ending often involves rethinking some tightly held positions. Elizabeth Bennet's willingness to set aside her pride and prejudice and reconsider Darcy's character is a pivotal point in that novel. But Jane Austen might have sloughed over some of the detail when her ending implied happily ever after. Throughout their lives, Elizabeth and Darcy, while gratefully and happily married, would continue to discover things about each other that would cause them to rethink and recalibrate. And maybe that's not a bad metaphor for us. 